0: Uh, we are in Deuteronomy. We're in the blessings and the curses section. So we've spent the bulk of the year in Deuteronomy going over the covenant stipulations. These are the things see, you, know, you may think, well, we spent so long in it, I don't even remember where we started. It's important because God was giving Israel the foundation of their entire society. And He was laying out, hey, for the second time, since your parents blew it, let me go over this. one what you're supposed to do when you get into this land I'm giving you. We talked about last week how the gift of the land was an act of grace, but the living under the covenant stipulations is the purpose of the law. And that has not changed in the New Covenant. God saves us by grace, but guess what? Jesus' commands weren't, hey, you're saved, do what you want. No, He actually gave commands to His church, and they all revolved around loving God and loving your neighbor. So, <clears throat> the commands in the Old Testament... The counterpart in the New Testament are the teachings of the apostles and the commandments Jesus gave and they're all centered around the commandment of love God, love one another. This is why the letters of uh, the Gospel of John and the letters of John, especially 1 John say, he gave us this command from the beginning, love one another. Or 2 John, walk in love. You know, everything that we do, that's the commands given to us today because we are a transnational, non-ethnic based, non-theocratic uh worldwide kingdom of God. Not a, not a localized entity in the ancient Near East known as Israel. That was theocratic. That was political and uh, geographically based. So the commands have a different face, but the heart of the commands is the same. And that's what we've seen this year. If you've been with us since the spring, we've seen the commands of Deuteronomy have been to bring about the type of society that is loyal to God as their great king. Not to any other gods, not to any other nations, not to any other thing in all of creation, but loyal to God, Yahweh, the one who is, as their chief, as their commander, as their king, who they're loyal and they serve. And so I brought in what I want to do before we jump into Deuteronomy 27. Um, I brought in, uh, I want to read you other treaties and other ancient Near... We mention these a lot, but I actually want to read you some of these firsthand. So you can see and hear the world into which Deuteronomy was written because you don't get this in very many Sunday sermons um, you know, or Sunday school classes. Or, you know, this is the stuff that gets tucked away in commentaries and libraries and things like that, but it shouldn't be because it helps us understand the text and it helps us see what's going on. So this is ancient Near East text related to the Old Testament. This is one of the, is probably the key uh, Old Testament, ancient Near East scholarly collection of, of documents from the world, from Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Hittite, uh, all of these. So I want to actually read some excerpts from some treaties so you can get an idea of how the people at the time or around the time that Israel was entering into this covenant with Yahweh, how they entered into covenants with one another. So for instance, this is um, uh, an excerpt. This one is from a treaty made between a Hittite king and an Egyptian king. The Hittites were kind of up in the north and then the Egyptians down the south. And this is an agreement made between two of their kings. And I'm not reading all of the uh, stipulations because that's a lot. But I just want to read the section after the stipulations are given. And there's all of the rules and all of the, if you if this happens, then this, and this is how you're going to live, and this is, you know, if, if somebody tries to flee from my country to yours, you're to extradite them back and vice versa, and you're to help us in battle, um, we're to be have a defensive alliance, all that kind of stuff. After the body, then it says, um, As for these words of the regulation, which the great prince of Hati made with Ramses, the great ruler of Egypt, in writing upon this tablet of silver... As for these words, a thousand gods of the male gods and of the female gods of them of the land of Hatti, together with a thousand gods of the male gods and of the female gods of them of the land of Egypt are with me as witnesses hearing these words. So they're invoking at the end of this treaty a thousand male and female gods of the Hittites and a thousand male and female gods of the Egyptians. In other words, all of the gods are witnessing, they are hearing this treaty that is being written on this tablet, in this case tablet of silver. And then it goes on to list some of the names of the gods, Re, Ariana, um, Seth, Zipalanda, you know, blah, 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 blah. you don't even the name you think biblical names are bad. Try reading Hittite names. Then it goes on to say, um at the end of the gods of the land of Kur uh yeah, the gods of the land of Kiziwanda, Ammon, the Ray, Seth, the male gods, the female gods, the mountains and the rivers of the land of Egypt. The sky, the earth, the great sea, the winds, and the clouds. So, listed among the witnesses to this covenant that the Hittites and the Egyptians are making, they're calling the mountains, the seas, the clouds, the rivers. In other words, nature itself, in addition to the thousands of gods, is bearing witness to this covenant. This is how it was done. So that everyone was all like, we're all hearing this. This is a public thing, this is not done in secret. And it goes on to say, "...as for these words which are on this tablet of silver in the land of Hatti and of the land of Egypt..." Two tablets. One in the land of Hathi, one in the land of Egypt. We've talked about that and the significance of the two tablets and of Moses. Uh, "...as for him who shall not keep them, a thousand gods of the lands of Hathi together with a thousand gods of the land of Egypt shall destroy his house, his land, and his servants. But as for him who shall keep these words which are on this tablet of silver..." Whether they are Hati or whether they are Egyptians, and are not neglectful of them, a thousand gods of the land of Hati together with a thousand gods of the land of Egypt shall cause uh, shall cause that he be well, shall cause that he live together with his houses and his lands and his servants. So at the end of the covenant, there's this blessing, curses first, and then blessings. If you break the commandment, if you break the covenant, may this happen. If you keep the covenant, may this happen. He's setting, they set before one another blessings and curses. So that's one example. Um, there's another treaty. This one is even more, uh, goes into more depth. So this is a treaty between Supilulilumas, that's a great name, and Kurtiwaza. All right, so again, the Hittite treaties, they're fun, the names are fun. But um, listen to what it says. It says a duplicate of this tablet has been deposited before the sun goddess of Arena because the sun goddess of Arena regulates kingship and queenship. In the the Mitanni land, a duplicate has been deposited before Tesub, the lord of the Karinu, of Kahat. At regular intervals, they shall read it in the presence of the king of the Mitanni land and in the presence of the sons of the Huri country. So, the king, the, these two groups, the Hurrian and the, uh, um, the, the Hittite peoples that are making this treaty, at regular intervals, this treaty will be brought back out, the copies that are in the lands, and will be read before the king and before the people. Keeping the words of the treaty in the minds of the people and the king throughout the generations. That's the purpose of, of making it, writing it down, putting it on these tablets or these stones, or whatever they were written on. In this case, uh, I don't think it says silver, but in the other case, it was silver. So in other words, this is how it worked in the ancient world. You made treaties. You, you, both people agreed to the treaties. There were stipulations to the treaties. There were blessings if you kept the treaties, but there were curses if you broke the treaties. And there were regular regular scheduled uh, reading and reconfirmation of the treaties, to be done in future generations does any of this sound familiar if you've been with us since the beginning of this study you see this is what torah is this is torah is god's treaty with israel it has all of these things historical prologue preamble stipulations blessings and curses depositing of the covenant regular reading of the covenant by the king and the people reading it out loud calling down curses if you break it this is all the language of the bible and it fits right within. This is one of the reasons when people talk about, well, the books of Moses were written way after the time of the Exodus and after, you know, David. and their, their, uh, Critical scholarship gets all into these different, you'll hear these, you uh, know, there's multiple sources. There's a J source, a B source, an E source, a P source. They cobbled together, they put together the, the, what we have as the Torah over hundreds of years, and it was finally put together maybe sometime before or after the exile. Nonsense. That's just absolute nonsense we see the text, how it worked in the ancient world of that time. We see it, we read it, we look at Torah, and we see it's pretty much exactly the same thing. So if people cobbled it together centuries later, before they even had access to these documents in a library, they did a pretty amazing job of it. (laughs) Because it fits exactly into the ancient Near East, where it claims to have been written. So you take the Bible as it claims to have been written and it makes a whole lot more sense than what you'll hear from higher critics about it being cobbled together by this source and this source and these contradictory accounts being woven together. Nonsense. Read the things that are around the time that it was written and you see that it fits perfectly within the setting of the ancient Near East. So that's a side note, but it's super important because every religious studies professor or textbook you pick up even at Christian colleges, we'll have stuff about the J source, the E source, the D source, you know the documentary hypothesis of how the Old Testament was put together, every synagogue, every Yeshiva you go to, all of these you know it's because it's been like 150 years of scholarship has just ingrained into students the idea of these different sources, all of it based on the assumptions of 19th and 20th century European scholars, most of whom didn't have a lot of first-hand knowledge of what the writings of the time were actually like. So, it may get a little technical, but that's just so that this is on record, the audio and the video for people that are listening along that are studying Old Testament, that are into Old Testament apologetics or Biblical apologetics, that it's important to keep in mind, and there's so much more that can be said on it, but we have to move on, because we've only got 15 minutes. So, this treaty, and we'll get to the Bible eventually, I promise, but I want you to hear um, what it's saying. Whoever will remove this tablet from before Teshub, the Lord of the Karinu of Kahat, and put it in a hidden place, if he breaks it or causes anyone else to change the wording of the tablet, at the conclusion of this treaty, we have called the gods to be assembled and the gods of the contracting parties to be present, to listen, and to serve as witnesses. Then it goes on to say, listing of all those gods again, like the other treaty, and then at the end of that list of the witnesses, the mountains and the rivers, the gods of heaven and the gods of earth. At the conclusion of the words of this treaty, let them be present. Let them listen. Let them serve as witnesses. Who? The mountains, the trees, the gods, all of nature. If you, Kirtiwaza, prince, and you, sons of the Hori country, do not fulfill the words of this treaty, may the gods, the lords of the oath, blot you, Kirtiwaza, and you, the Hori men, together with your country, your wives, and all that you have. May they draw you like malt from its hull, and you, the Hori men, with your wives, your sons, and your country, have no seed." These gods of the contracting parties may bring misery and poverty over you. May they overturn your throne, yours of Kirtiwaza. May the oaths sworn in the presence of these gods break you like reeds. You, Kirtiwaza, together with your country, may they exterminate them from the earth, your name and your seed Uh, And it goes on to say, May the earth be coldness so that you fall down slipping. May the soil of your country be a hardened quagmire so that you break in but never get across. May you, Kurtiwaza, and you the Hurrians be hateful to the thousand gods. May they pursue you. Curses, calling on nature itself to enact the curses and the gods. If, on the other hand, you, Kurtiwaza prince, and you the Hurrians fulfill this treaty and this oath, May these gods protect you, Kirtiwaza, together with your wife, the daughter of the Hati land, her children and her children's children, and also you, the Hurrians, together with your wives, your children and your children's children, and together with your country. May the Mitanni country return to the place which it occupied before. May it thrive and expand. May you, Kirtiwaza, and your sons and your sons' sons, descended from the daughter of the great king of the Hati land, and you, the Hurrians, exercise kingship forever." May the throne of your father persist. May the Mitanni country persist. So if you, Mitanni people, keep this treaty with King Kurtiwaza, who's making this treaty with you, and both of you uphold it, may you both be blessed. May you as a people continue. These are the promises that ancient Near East covenants regularly employed. Now, let's pick up Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 27. Chapter 27 is a bookend to the stipulations section. Chapter 11, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, it talked about, I put before you today blessings and curse. So it it announced this um, ceremony, but then the stipulations came, chapters 12 through 26. Now we've come back to the other side of the bookend, chapter 27. We get back to where chapter 11 left off, the blessings and curses. So, chapter 27, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all this command. NIV says these commandments, but it's singular in Hebrew. All this command, meaning all of it together was seen as a singular. That's why in the New Testament it says if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking all the law. Because they weren't laws that you could pick and choose from. It was all or nothing. Keep it all or you've broken it all. So, keep all the command that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones. Coat them with plaster. This was an Egyptian practice, by the way. They would coat with plaster and then write on it. Coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law. When you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal as I command you today and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar to the Lord your God with unhewn stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God and you shall write very clearly and in hebrew it literally says you shall explain well all the words of this law on these stones you have set up so when they go they're going to get to mount ebal they're going to there it is okay so geography wise israel's is going to enter cross the jordan river jericho's right here jerusalem would be like up here this is up at mount ebal and mount gerizim which is up North of Jerusalem. This is in the area of Shechem. This is where Abraham, where Isaac, where Jacob and his sons all lived. Where God made the promises of the land. So not right when you cross over, but when you cross over and have entered into and taken possession of the land, have begun, have gone. I mean, this is miles away. This is like dead center of the country, and they're going to cross over here at this point. So it's not like we cross and then we make this ceremony. No. You're going to cross in, you're going to take the land, (coughs) you're going to travel, you're going to go, you're going to enter, you're going to go back to where God made this promise to your ancestors, in the area of Shechem. And in the area, there's an east-west corridor. So if you've been to Israel, the geography, there's mountainous region all throughout the middle. And then, so you've got the uh, Sea Sea of Galilee up here, Dead Sea here, Jordan River runs this way. You've got mountains that run up and down the hill country. Then you've got this, it kind of goes down to the coastal plain where you have you know modern Tel Aviv and all the way down to Gaza and all these places. So the geography is you cross the river, there's mountainous territory both ways, then the coastal plain all the way to the sea. <clears throat> the mountainous region is divided only in one of a couple of places by large valleys. Um, valleys like um, the Valley of Megiddo or har um the Valley of Elah, uh, just different valleys that kind of cut through that mountainous region. So one of those valleys in the area near Shechem, on each side of it, on the top and on the bottom, from our perspective, left and right from their perspective, are two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And it was like you walking between... You guys remember if you saw the movie, Lord of the Rings, and they're on the, the uh, river and they're going down, and they see those big two giant stone statues that they go between. Kind of think of that. Because the Mount Abal, Mount Gerizim were going to be the symbol as they pass into the land, coming or going, they would have to pass by these eternal statues, stone monuments that were set up that had the whole covenant written on them. On each side. And this is what the people were going to go through so that every time they passed the region, entering into the land, out of the land, traders coming into the land, armies coming through the land. Anytime you went through this corridor, you were walking through the covenant itself. It was a constant reminder geographically. Why? Because all of heaven and earth is a witness to this covenant that God made with His people. He doesn't say, I call to witness the thousand gods of this and of that, because no, there's one God. So I am witness today. I, Yahweh. But I'm also calling to witness the mountains, and later the prophets will talk about the other aspects of nature, the sky, the rivers, um, and you yourselves are my witness. Because look what he says, verse nine. This is just what you'd expect. What do you do? What happens if you break the covenant? Then Moses and the priests, who are Levites, said to all Israel, "Be silent, Israel, and listen." In Hebrew, literally, "Shut up and listen." <laughs> That's what it says. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Were they not God's people before? No, they, they were God's people. But this is a reaffirmation. This is kind of like when you do wedding vows and you redo your wedding vows, right? It's not like you weren't married before, but people have these wedding remembrance ceremonies. Same thing with baptisms. If you go to a church where they baptize infants and you want to experience a baptism again, you don't get rebaptized. If you're baptist, you do. But if you're not baptist, you don't get rebaptized. You go through a baptism remembrance ceremony where they say remember your baptism and they reenact it. So it's not a new thing, but it's a remembering. So it's that's what Israel is being it's happening right now is they're ratifying this covenant. God's saying, now You are God's people. Now, it is this is is like you're signing your name on the contract. The God who's brought you out and preserved you all along, you are now entering into, it's kind of when you become, uh, think of like a bar mitzvah, if you have Jewish friends, right? Okay, if you're a kid, you're raised in a Jewish home, part of the synagogue. It's not like you're not Jewish. It's not like you're not part of the synagogue. But what's your bar mitzvah? That's when you become bar mitzvah, son of the commandment. That's when you, or bat mitzvah, if you're a girl, daughter of the commandment. That's when you are now at an age where you can take on the commandment as your own. It's no longer your parents' fate, it's your fate. So that's what this section now, God is giving Israel a chance. This is no longer your parents' covenant, this is your covenant. And so, on the same day, Moses commanded the people, verse 12, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. These tribes shall stand on Mount Abel to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, and Dan, Naphtali. Six tribes on one side, six tribes on the other. The two mountains across from each other. The Levites shall sight to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. And now comes what's called the dodecalogue. So the decalogue is the ten words, the ten commandments, and that was a summary of what it means to keep the law. The Ten Commandments was like, this is what it means to keep the law. And then all the stipulations after the Ten Commandments were how that would actually play out in different circumstances. This is the dodecalogue. This is the twelve words. But these are the twelve curses if you break the commandments. And these are curses that only can be applied by God because these are all things that would be done in secret. These are not things that would be punishable under a court because they, they wouldn't be a crime that anybody would witness. These are things that are done in secret. So the only one who could punish them, this breaking of the covenant, would be God Himself. So it says, the Levites shall recite, verse 15, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hand, and sets it apart in secret. So this is secret breaking of the first commandment. Not open breaking of the first commandment, where you're like, hey, this is the new temple of Baal. Come worship. No. This is like, yeah, we'll go to the temple. We'll worship Yahweh. But keep this in your house and pray to this if you really want to be fertile, if you really want your crops to grow, if you really want to have good health. That's what this is talking about. Secret breaking of the covenant. And all the people will shout, Amen. Two, cursed is the man who treats with contempt. and IV says dishonors, but it's more than dishonors. It's, it's a harsher term. Treats with contempt his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. This would be done in secret. You're out in the field. You're grazing your crops. Oh, I can't go. That's their land. Their land is from this stone to this. But if I move the stone, now I can graze my crops. They lost a little bit of their land. They didn't even know it because they're back in the town. This is something that only God would see and punish. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Cursed is the man, and then all the people say amen. Cursed is the man who diverts, and IV says withholds, but it diverts or twists or distorts justice from the immigrant, the fatherless, or the widow. And then all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, or for he, and IV says dishonors his father's bed. That's, a, that's an interpretation. Literally, it says, for he uncovers the fringe or the garment of his father. He uncovers his father's robe skirt so to speak what does that mean well when you took somebody to marry think about Ruth was Boaz do wraps his cloak around her this is the marriage symbol i'm spreading my garment over you now you've come under my protection now you're my wife so for you to for somebody to go in and sleep with the father of your wife or with the wife of your father is to uncover the to uncover the skirt right it's a, it's a it's a figure of speech but it's a very powerful one it, it, it goes against what God has in mind for the family and for the whole structure of society. Of course, it is the man who has sexual relations with any animal. The word is livestock. And it would be, again, this would not be done, it's not like you'd do this in a town square, right? This would be done out while you're keeping the field, out in the shepherds. And it's not just because of like, sexual curiosity or perversion. Think of the Canaanite gods, think of the gods of Egypt. Think of the stories of gods mating with animals and producing these divine hybrids. Think of the reverence that people have for, like, the cow or the bull or any of these animals that were seen in the ancient world as majestic. So there would be ritual reasons to want to have sex or enter into some kind of sexual relationship with an animal, not just because you're, you know, pent up and want to get some frustration out, but because you think, hey, this is actually a mystical, magical, religious thing. And this will grant somehow, some way, my crops to increase. Or my fertility. or my, isn't The Canaanite religion was entirely twisted and distorted, but it used nature and sex and fertility and all these things. And so God's saying, Cursed is anybody who does that. All the people shout Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. All the people shall say Amen. Guess who did this? Abraham. This is a shifting point in the Old Testament ethic. Under the covenant, what God let the patriarchs get away with would no longer be tolerated. The ethic has been raised. And in the New Covenant, what God let Israel get away with in many cases, we talk about divorce and polygamy, in the New Testament, that's no longer allowed. God is always raising the ethic of His people as they move through history. And this is an example of it. Then it goes on to say, Cursed is the man who sleeps with his mother-in-law. All the people shall say Amen. Cursed is the man who strikes his neighbor secretly. NIV says kills, but it's the word that means strike. It can mean strike, like strike down. Or it can just mean attack. But cursed is the one who does it secretly. All the people shall say Amen. Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to strike an innocent person. All the people shall say Amen. Cursed is the man who does not elevate, lift up, I think NIV says uphold, the words of this Torah, this law, by carrying them out. All the people shall say Amen. So that's how it ends. Cursed is the person who does not do all of this. Paul will have something to say about this in Galatians. He'll say, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not keep the whole law. So in Galatians 3, it will reference this passage. And Paul will show why no one can stand righteous under the law because all have sinned and broken it. So the problem that this leaves us with is, well, if all the people break this law and all the people are cursed by God, how will the world ever be saved? How will God's plan ever carry forward? God Himself will become one of His people. He will take upon Himself the curse that they deserved, and then will do away with the law by enter, ushering in the new covenant that is what we know of as the Gospel. So all of this ties into what the Gospel itself even brings about. But we're two minutes over, so we gotta go. Next week, let me just warn you, after this curses, there's gonna be blessings for obedience, because that's what happens in the covenants. Then it's gonna do what scripture always does. Remember how in the Bible Scripture will tell something in, in kind of overview, and then it'll go back and really get into the details. So the next week you're gonna see it. It's gonna tell an overview. It told an overview this week, that's the curses. Next time, it's going to really get into what those curses are. And it's twice as long as this chapter, and it's ten times as horrendous. So eat your lunch, but maybe bring something if you have a weak stomach, because it's going to get uh, interesting. We've got to go continue to pray for McLean, um, and have a great week. We'll see you guys next time.